I call her first thing in the morning and she's like, well, Terry didn't cut the song. I'm like, oh, she's like, but Alan Jackson put it on hold. I'm like, ah, wait, what? I don't know what to feel right now. Joining us this week is Brent Baxter, a hit songwriter who has worked with artists like Alan Jackson, Lady Antebellum, Randy Travis, and many more. He is also one of the co-hosts of the songwriter podcast, The Climb, and is extremely active in the songwriter development sphere through the website Songwriting Pro. After working a 9-to-5, Brent took the leap and moved to Nashville to pursue his dreams as a songwriter. Brent shares his experiences growing as a songwriter and finding a publisher who wants to invest in your future not your past on this episode of the big break brent baxter welcome to the podcast thanks for joining us today hey thanks for having me on i appreciate it all right great so uh where are you calling us from today where where are you now well, this is a story in itself. I am actually calling from Southwest Missouri. I split time between here and Nashville, and uh, thanks to COVID, I'm uh-huh. spending. It's been a while since I've been back to Nashville, so I am in Southwest Missouri. All right, great. And that's actually my next question: was how have you been? Um, I guess coping. What might be the best way to, to put it with uh, with everything that's been happening? Has it been uh, overly disruptive to your uh, to working, to writing, and, and and whatnot? Well, definitely. You know, I've had to cancel my last couple trips to Nashville. So about two years ago, we felt uh, God calling us to move to Southwest Missouri, where my my wife's family. Uh, lives that we've adopted three kids and and you got some special needs and some special situations there so it's just you know there's nobody's mama like mama's mama so <laughs> uh, we felt it was going to be good for our family situation to basically relocate out of Nashville to Southwest Missouri so you know her parents are super helpful with the kids and some of the needs we have there and then I just keep going back to Nashville. I'm like, okay, what we're saving in mortgage, that's going to, you know, gasoline and plane tickets. And so I've been heading back and forth. So it's been almost two years with that. And then all of a sudden COVID hits. So there go the last couple trips. I was just curious, how, how, how long of a trip is that? I'm not familiar. With it is 500 miles of the most boring, can't get cell service, <laughs> can't even talk to your buddies on the road to keep you engaged trip. So I fly out of Northwest Arkansas when I can. Okay. Yeah, that and I'm from sense. Arkansas, so it's always nice to, you know, cross the border and, and get a little taste of home. So, yeah, I fly when I can and uh, drive when I'm taking kids or more of the family or whatever with me on some of the trips. So Okay, all right, all right. So then yeah. have you been working around that somehow? Do you have like a, uh, I don't know, do you write where you are now in Missouri or do you oh, just Yeah, just sure stop? do. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely never stop. Um, so I'm pretty blessed with what I do. That's how we were able to move here is going, okay, I can do a lot of stuff location independently because I write. And the other thing I do is I have a website, songwritingpro.com, and I have a podcast, The Climb. And mm-hmm. so a lot of what I do is location independent anyway. I, you know, I've been doing Zoom rights for the last two years anyway, ever since we moved, getting used to that because I use Zoom for coaching and, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm pretty used to that. So we, that's how we felt like we could, we could go ahead and make the move. And with trips back to keep touching, you know, making contacts and stuff, it was going to work out okay. So I was actually kind of geared for this since I do so much stuff remotely anyway. I just, I do a lot more Zoom co-writes now than I did before. Sure. 
It's just that you're one of the two maybe that are a little bit more experienced with it than than others, perhaps. Exactly. I'm like, oh, we're good. I'll walk you through it. Yes. Yeah. And and in a way, you know, there's a there's a question I heard, I think, from Michael Hyatt. He's a speaker and author. And it's what does this make possible? You know, when something like this happens that nobody wanted, and you start looking for, okay, what does this make possible? What is the upside for this? Where can I find some silver lining? And for me, it's been well, great. People that normally you would, they'd just be more comfortable in the room with you. Now they're not in the room with people as much. And so they've had to get more used to writing online like Skype or Zoom or whatever, FaceTime. And so therefore it actually makes it possible for me to fill my calendar even more with people that wouldn't have been as open to writing online before. You know, people I used to write in the room with, but now it's like, well, I guess it doesn't matter where you are because we're not in the room. So I got to ask then, and, and we're already off topic, which is a fantastic way to get started <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But like, um, uh, do you think that's going to last uh, once, you know, whenever this is, you know, quote unquote over or behind mm-hmm. us? I mean, do you think that becomes sort of a new normal? Right, right now it's a necessity, but, but does it become sort of the norm perhaps? Do you, do you feel Are there enough benefits to it outside of just, you know, staying healthy that mm-hmm. it may continue? I, I think there are some definite benefits. Like if, like around Nashville, people hate the traffic. You know, a lot of people live outside because it's it's you know less expensive to live thirty, forty, an hour out, and then you got this long drive in. So I think for some things like people that have their own home studio, they can work from their home studio. You know, you save the commute, you save the lunch. If everyone goes out to lunch and eats for you know that takes an hour out of the day, and it's great for networking and bumping into people, but that's like twenty bucks and. And so for the economics of kind of the current situation for songwriters, I think like, okay, I can save, you know, two hours of driving during the day. I can save, you know, lunch because I just hop on down the kitchen, you know, and save money that way and, and all that kind of stuff. There are some definite upsides to it. So I think it will, you know, I can't wait to get back in the room with people. And so I think that's going to be a thing, but I think it's also going to open up where, oh, you know, you know, someone's, my kid, you know, is under the weather and I'm going to stay home with them, but I can still write. I can still get a hop online, that sort of thing. So I think it's going to open it up more. And I don't think that would be the exclusive way, but I think it's going to open it up, which is nice. Yeah, it's just so funny. We keep on adding layers of options to, well, particularly in the music business, as things evolve, as technologies evolve, as things that before we would um, avoid or Mm -hmm. in some way look down on, then suddenly becomes... um, like what I'm calling a necessity, and then they realize, oh, that wasn't so bad after all, and, and then it just adds those other options to things. I think it's great. Um, mm-hmm. I personally love it. Um, I like you. I was pretty k- kind of geared for this anyway. Like mm-hmm. you know, I work. I, I could. I've worked from home for ten years, and and, and I have a home office set up. So you know, I, I was fortunate in that I had a lot of those things. But I totally understand it. It's nice when the eyes kind of open and people see things in different ways. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me ask another quick question, though, to kind sure. of pivoting into uh, what we're here for and whatnot. Today. <laughs> so, you know, you're you're, you're a songwriter. Um, can I? I've done. I've read a little bit about you before the mm-hmm. before we had this call today and whatnot. But help me out. I, I, um, I know that some people focus maybe on lyricists, like mm-hmm. you know, the, the words and lyrics and whatnot, and maybe others focus on the actual notes and the music. Do you do both? Are you are are you in one camp or another? Just help me. Um, Oh, I'm I'm strongly both feet planted, okay. bare, you know, sunk in concrete and posted like a fence post in the lyricist camp. I so, see. Yeah, me do words good. Uh, me so do words good. Me gotcha. do words good. <laughs> right. Uh, so I figured out early on that that is my skill set. I mean, I'd always been 
words have always been my thing. I mean, I used to read, you know, this is kind of, I know you like to get into the, the backstory and history. So yep. on yep. This. I'll go ahead and dive into some of that. That's uh, perfect. Yeah. I grew up, uh, Reading comic books, drawing. I, at one point, I, my dream job was going to be like a comic book writer and artist, you know. So now I just go to the movies. But, mm-hmm. you know, so that I was creating. I was telling stories. And and then I got into writing short stories, writing really bad poetry, some in high school and, and that sort of thing. It was Christmas of 1994. So I was a sophomore in college at Arkansas State University back home. And a buddy took what I thought was a poem, but was structured like a like a lyric and he put a melody to it and i was like oh this feels finished now this like can get out into the world he could like play it for people this is awesome like no one you know who's going to sit down and read my short stories or whatever like and this can get reaction and i was hooked and so since then i've been writing almost exclusively you know song lyrics okay well let let me go back a little bit further than that Mm -hmm. so like so you so you you were Let's go even before you know uh, college. The writing component of things, which, mm-hmm. you know, writing was something that uh, you said comic books when you were early on. But mm-hmm. was that was that something? I mean, were you writing short stories? Were you writing poetry already? Like, what was uh, you know what was how, how were you getting into that? Just as, on a personal level, forget about career or money or anything mm-hmm. else for a second. Just oh yeah, yeah. It was just I got into comic books, loved reading those. Had big old collection that my that my kids nowadays still have some of them and just treat them. You know, they're at the bottom of, you know, baskets and shelves and stuff all ripped up and it hurts my heart just a little bit. But, uh, yeah, so I was reading comics and so I'd, I'd draw my own and write my own stories. And then eventually I just started writing the stories without all the artwork uh, when I was a kid in junior high and high school. And I'm, I'm known among friends and families like the bad pun guy. You know, always playing with words, making bad puns, that kind okay. of stuff. Always playing okay. with language. And okay. I didn't realize this till years later, like after I'd already been writing songs and really getting into that going, you know what? I've always been playing with language, always been playing with words. It's just my natural bent. Like it's, you know, a, a pun that makes you laugh or makes you groan and roll your eyes. Either way is good with me as long as I get a reaction. So I just right. love playing with language. So that's just kind of built into me since as far back as I can remember well before. And I didn't ever think about that as being writing, but that is so much of what we do with turning phrases and sure. finding titles and that sort of thing. So it was pretty comforting actually when I realized that about myself, like, oh, this songwriting thing isn't just a something I've just kind of latched on to or whatever. It's like I've always been playing I'm a writer. I've always been playing with words and playing with language and and so I short stories and in junior high and high school started doing poetry uh, more in high school, just kind of venting stuff. And and I would also like write uh, parody songs for existing songs, you know, ah. with buddies. We'd, we'd do that. I'd, I'd write a parody song to The Legend of Willie Swamp, you know, by Charlie Daniels about a math teacher or something, you know, and just, <laughs> you know, just silly stuff or with buddies on, on church choir tours and stuff. We'd, you know, rewrite like Friends in Low Places because the bus broke down and we wrote Friends in Service Stations and <laughs> and rewriting and that kind of stuff. So I was like the lyric guy on that stuff. And it was just fun. I just love that, that kind of creativity. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So now, now you mentioned university. Uh, did <laughs> where, I guess, where'd you go? To, I think, I, I think you mentioned, it, but I, I didn't hear it. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? And what were you studying? Were you studying writing or like, like not at all. Uh, I went to Arkansas state university, Arkansas so state. red wolves back when they were the Indians. And, uh, I, I went to school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Cause I didn't start really getting into writing lyrics until I was already in college. So I said, like, I'll just do some sort of business or something. I don't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, Cause it ship itself on like being a comic book 
artist and writer. I didn't think that sure. was a thing anymore, but I didn't really have a direction. It's like, I guess I'll just go into business. So I started uh, studying human resource management was kind of my emphasis, my major. Uh, but then, you know, my sophomore year, about halfway through that year, when the songwriting bug hit me, I was like, you know, that started becoming more and more of a dream. But I went ahead and stuck it out in college, got my undergrad and human resources. Then I stuck around and got my MBA. So my master's in business uh, took like another year and a half. But by that time, my, the dream was definitely, I want to get to Nashville and I want to be a songwriter. Okay. So you're in school, you're studying, mm-hmm. um, you know, business, but you're writing songs. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll call it on the side. I don't really know what the best uh, way of putting it is, but, right, like, yeah. you, but you were doing that as, I don't know, uh, hobby, you know, fun. Like, were you writing with someone who wrote music? Like, what were you, how was all that, how was all that manifesting itself at the time? Yeah. So I had one main co-writer, a guy named Tim Meitzen. So he went to church with me back home in Batesville, Arkansas, and he was a couple of years younger than me. And he was the guy that put that, what I thought was a poem to melody. And so he was into country music. He was dreamed to be in a country music singer. And, and so yeah, we'd write songs. I, when I'd go back home over the summer, we'd go camping a bunch and write songs. You know, out by the cabin, we'd um, write over the phone, over email. Just you know, if I'd go back on the weekends, he was my main guy. I never really found any other uh, consistent co-writers in college. There was an NSAI chapter locally outside of Jonesboro, so National Songwriters Association, and mm-hmm. they had a chapter there. I would I would go to those monthly meetings and try to find co-writers there, get my stuff. Um, you know, get song feedback from NSAI, mail off a cassette tape, and six weeks or so later, you know, some anonymous pro would come back with some their feedback on it. And so, you know, pretty quickly, I mean, by it was Christmas of 94, the first time I accidentally wrote a song. And by spring break of 97, Tim and I were going to Nashville on spring break. You know, he was in college by that point, and that was my spring break because I'm going to go to Nashville. So within a couple of years, like, it was it was a hobby, yes, because I wasn't doing it for money, and you know I still had to keep my grades up and that sort of thing. But it was it was a dream with the direction. Like I want to get to Nashville, and I want to be a songwriter. I want to get songs okay. on the radio. Okay, yeah, all right. So the, so the, yeah, so the degree I don't know, maybe that was more like your backup or something like that. But yeah, um, but but you were making the efforts. You, you were, so did anything happen with any of those early songs? Were you getting? And was anyone taking them or, or, or using them? Or oh heck no, no, it was a <laughs> long way. Away from where it needed to be. So the uh, it, I moved to Nashville in 2002. So in around 2000, I'd graduated uh, from the grad school, and and Tim and I were both living in Little Rock because he was going to uh, meds or going to like pharmacy school down there. And so we were writing a bunch, and we cobbled money together to go up to Austin, Arkansas, to Blue Chair Recording Studio. And we and he cut a record. He was the artist, and I co-wrote almost all the songs with him. And, you know, I still have it on the, on my wall behind me, on my shelf behind me at my desk here. And, you know, it's a certification for triple plywood because we sold like 300 units of, you know, <laughs> his record. And I had a little thing framed up, gave it to the guy at the studio, you know, just enjoying the journey. And it was a joke, but it was also like, hey, we're making progress. Like, you, you know, these are, these are our first full, like basically what they were demos, something we could take to Nashville and start playing for folks at ASCAP and, and different places, whatever publishers we could get to. It had something that sounded better for us to shop around for him as That's an good. artist and for me as a writer. So now you're, because you had, you, had you had a job, you work, if I remember, if I read correctly, you were working at some telecom company or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Altel time, Communications, right? yeah, Altel Communications. Altel Communications. I used to cover telecom when I was a reporter back in the day, so I remember Altel. Okay, That's yeah. Funny. I remember it well. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I could just imagine, like, what a, what a, like, 
two sides of a, of, of a spectrum there. You know, you got the, you got the all tell telecom job and, but you, mm-hmm. but dreams of, of, you know, songwriting in Nashville, that had to be an interesting way to get through the day. It, <laughs> was, <I mean. laughs> it, it was, it was rough. I was in, I was in the retail activation center. So I was in a cubicle. I was, I called oh, it the, kh- the khaki ant farm, you uh-huh. know? And so I was in there and just, you know, sipping on a Mountain Dew with literally kind of tethered to a phone at my desk, taking inbound calls from, you know, all tell stores and running credit on people and setting up phones and not what I wanted to be doing. And in between calls and whatever, I'm, you know, scratching out lyrics and working on stuff and had my mind on that kind of stuff in between calls because there wasn't much else to do. And so I love the slow days. I'd, I'd get a pretty good bit written. So I was working on that. And at night it's hit the couch, eat and, you know, work on songs a lot and started finding some other co-writers, guys like Kevin Mason that were in uh, Little Rock at the time. And, and just trying to find whatever community I could in Little Rock. And there wasn't much of a songwriter community or music community that I ever, you know, there are a few folks, but there wasn't a whole lot going on there. So when, when do you realize that it's time to make that break, quit the, quit the job mm-hmm. with the paycheck, pack it up and hang it out there on the line to Nashville? Like, yeah. How, how do you make that decision? I struggle with that. So I was in Little Rock from basically 2000 to, early 2002. So I was there for, I probably had that job for about a year and a half or something at Alltel. And, and I was struggling with that because, you know, here I, I went through, I had, you know, went through grad school. So I had this side of me that's like business and very kind of conservative. This has to make sense. I'm not going to move to Nashville without a job. I'm not going to wait tables. I, I need to. So I was doing some looking for a job in Nashville, something to, to pay my way there. A job like any kind of, like a, like a songwriting job or, or like another telecom job or just what, what do you mean by a job in Nashville? Well, I started to make some connections in Nashville uh, with some publishers. There's like one publisher, Norman DeVazier, that would, uh, he was with RPM Music at the time. And I could meet with him a little bit, but I knew I was... Well, maybe I didn't know it then, but I was miles from a, a publishing deal. So it was just more like, can I find a day job that will pay for my move? And mm-hmm. I was getting frustrated. Like I wanted to get there really badly. And eventually it came to the point where my, I have some family from Nashville. My, my aunt Allison grew up there. So my dad's brother's wife, right. And her mom rented some rooms out and there came a spot open. I heard, and that was enough. Like, okay. There's a room and I can help pay off some of the rent by mowing her yard and doing some of that stuff. I'm going. That's enough of an open window. I quit my job and I moved to Nashville without a job. Exactly what I said I wouldn't do, Um, (laughs) which led to me doing something else I said I wouldn't do, which was waiting tables. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny how that happens. Like like, when you know you want to make a movie, you know you want to be at a place. There's like... I don't know, three or four things that kind of need to happen for mm-hmm. that move to be successful. And you don't always need all three or four of those to be like locked in before you make the move. One of them is usually enough. I got right. a job, but not a place to stay. I got a place to stay, but not a job, you know, right. whatever, like th- that kind of thing. It's a, it's interesting how that can happen. So you got, you had the place to stay. You knew that you had a place for shelter and yes. that you could do something to kind of get it going. They weren't going to be like kicking you on the street. You've got a connection with the person. So exactly. And like, right. hopefully the grass will grow fast. So I have plenty of yard to mow <laughs> and that can help lower expenses and, and I can hopefully find something. And, and that ended up being a, a great open door for me. Of course, I, I knew none of this at the time, but when I moved in, um, I had a roommate there named Kevin. So she had like three of the bedrooms open for rent. And so this mm-hmm. other guy, Kevin had been living there for a long time. And, and he knew some folks at billboard. He worked in the music business some and, he heard about a job at Blue Water Music, which is a publishing ah. company, an admin company. 
mm-hmm. like in doing data entry, like in the royalty and admin side. And I heard about that through him. And so I called him up and applied for the job and it would be straight data entry. Like, Hey, here are these st- statements coming in from Sony and from ASCAP or whatever. We have clients that we do admin for put their numbers in the system and get it right. So that they pay, get paid out, you know, their royalties or quarterlies. And so I interviewed for that and, and I knew about blue water because I'm into songwriting. I, I was a fan of some of their writer artists. They're kind of like a little boutique publishing company. Had folks like Chris Knight, Kim Ritchie, Jim Lauderdale, Tim Kreckle, and some really cool cast of characters that oh, were I'm there. Blue Water. We actually worked with uh, a guy that used to work there. Uh, I don't know if you know Benham Plum by any chance. Uh, I've communicated some with Benham. Right. He wasn't yeah. there when I was, but okay. yeah, yeah. No, no so, I know Benham. He's here in Denver too, and he used to work there. He's a he teaches music business stuff now. But anyway, good guy. Oh, I awesome. a lot about Blue Water. So yeah. So I interviewed there with Pete Roselli and um, ah. I didn't get the gig <laughs> and I didn't, they were impressed that I knew kind of already some of the catalogs. I'm like, Oh yeah, Kim, she's had these hits by so-and-so she's written this stuff. And like, Oh, okay. You just moved to town, but you, man, you already kind of know the lay of the land, at least here, but somebody else had experience in that computer system, you know, the sure. data entry, they already knew that the crunch of the numbers part of it. So I didn't get that. So I went and I started waiting tables at Cracker Barrel. Because <laughs> it was close to the house, you know, and uh-huh. a week or two later, I got a call back and that person was having back issues or whatever and just basically couldn't sit that long. And, you know, just for that or whatever else reason, I, it came open, you know, and they like, you All want right. the gig? I'm like, yes. And so I started doing that and waiting tables. And so it was part time. But that got but me to Music Row every day. I'm in the yeah. mix. I'm in the music business. I'm going to Music Row every day on, you know, 17th Avenue. And get to go there and and hang out. And there are songwriters that write there, guys like Charlie Steffel and Tim Kreckle. And and we had other publishers that were clients of ours that we would do royalties for and admin licensing for. And so that put me around them some and got to meet some other people. And just hearing the language of the business. And, you know, I've read, you know, all you need to know about the music business from Donald Passman and, and sure. Pat Patterson books. And, yeah, I tried to do my homework back in Little Rock. But being there every day and just seeing royalty statements. And, and then later I moved into the licensing side and working with licensing and, and just getting to know people. It was, it was a real big blessing to be able to, that yeah. was kind of my foot in the door. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing how uh, it's like, there's a certain, uh, like a language that gets, mm-hmm. I mean, you can read it in a book like anyone else can, but when you're there and you're hearing it day to day and it's like, it becomes sort of the cadence of everyday life. It's more than just a concept. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's what people discuss. It's how, it's what they talk about. Yeah. And, and, and at first you you're in those conversations and you maybe don't really understand everything, what they're saying. And after a while you're just in the stream. Yeah. And you, you, know, you just speak it. like one of the people that are in the business, like you belong right. there, which is nice. Right. <laughs> right. And I'm sure it helps down the line. We'll probably get to that. Oh yeah. But you're, but you're still writing, but the, uh, this isn't your yes. goal. Your goal is to write songs. Yes, exactly. So I'm, so I'm, you know, messing around with my schedule to try and find as many gaps as I can to write. And that's one of the things you, you face when you, if you move to a Nashville or New York or LA is like, do I, do I get a day job? So I'm free to write at night. I'm free to go out at night to the open mics and to the shows and, and write at night. But most of the pros are writing during the day, but I can go out and do a lot of that networking at night. Or do I get a night gig like waiting tables or whatever, bartending, whatever. And so I have my days open so I can write with the pros, but how am I going to meet them if I'm working at night? You know. And so <laughs> I kind of do a little bit of both. And so I'd go out on my nights off from Cracker Barrel and then 
also, thankfully, during the day at Blue Water, that also got me in the business and helped me meet some people. So I'm just writing all around that. That's my life. Blue Water, waiting tables and writing songs. That's it. So, a little bit to sleep. And I got to ask one little, little side question because I'm not as familiar with how this works. But you're, mm-hmm. you're as you mentioned, firmly two feet planted in the lyricist side. Mm-hmm. Is that, I don't know, is that, is that, uh, um, in any way unusual? Is it, are you like in the minority? Do people usually write music and lyrics, but you're only doing lyrics? Is that any way limiting? I, I don't know. I, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, well, that's kind of the answer. It's not enough. It's not common enough that you know. <laughs> so uh, okay. it's not super common. And so it's, yeah, people are like, really? You don't you don't have melody? I'm like, no, not really. No. And I sing like a horse. And, you know, figured out <laughs> early on that like, this is not my skill set, my skill set is words, playing with language, ideas, and that sort of thing. And so I worked on phrasing and where stuff will sing well, because I did a lot of woodshedding, a lot of writing on my own before I'd take stuff into co-writers, because basically I had more time to write than I had co-writers, you know, back in Arkansas. And, and then when I first moved to Nashville. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, hey, I'm coming to the room, not with a guitar, I'm coming with later on a laptop but in the beginning just a notebook and pencil and paper and like hey i got this stack of stuff i've been working on do you like any of these titles any of these ideas and then we'd work on them sometimes i'd come in with a more complete thing and somebody would just need to put words or put melody to it and we'd you know tweak the the words to make it fit or whatever or we'd start with an idea and a concept all kind of you know various stages or they'd bring something in and i'd help them with the lyric and so i'm just trying to go out and meet people so i didn't play out either you know nashville's famous open mic nights and writers rounds and all this stuff i didn't do that so uh i knew one writer when i moved to nashville her name is aaron enderlin and she was the only one there you know tim ended up moving later and so i started meeting some people and you know he got there later the guy that had the triple plywood with uh so he moved there so we wrote and stuff but Basically, I knew Erin for back in Arkansas. She is from Arkansas, but at the time, she was at school at Middle Tennessee State in Murfreesboro, just outside of Nashville. And we met, it was probably her spring break of 2001, so it was less than a year before I moved to Nashville. And I'd heard about her through some local music people and had heard some of her stuff. Well, I saw that she was going to be playing like a pizza place in Little Rock over spring break. So I went out to see her and, and we connected. I gave her, you know, one of those 300 copies of, of that record that Tim and I did. Uh, she'd kind of heard of me a little bit. And so when she came back over summer, we started writing together and she's from Conway, Arkansas. So I drive up to Conway. It's like 30 minutes from Little Rock. And so we'd write there. And over that time, um, and then the next Christmas, so Christmas of 2001, uh, that's when I brought in what I had of, of Monday morning church. And she'd Loved the idea and what I had of it. So, you know, we finished it together. She put a great melody on it, helped with the lyric and all that good stuff. And she brought it back to Nashville with her. And I moved in March of 2002. And so I'd go, if I saw that Aaron was playing out or I knew that she was playing out somewhere, I'd go to her round. Because maybe she'll play one of our songs, maybe she won't, but she's one of the few people I know. And I'd see who else was in the round with her. And normally, you know the people in your round. And there's like another guy, Anthony Orio, that was in her round, and I liked what he did. So he and I hit it off. You know, I'd go up and talk to him. Hey, I write with Aaron, and maybe she played our song that night or whatever. And and so he and I started writing together, and he was playing out. So then I'd go to his rounds too and see who's sitting next to him. So that was kind of how I use rounds to my advantage without me the, being the guy behind the mic. It's just through those relationships. Sure. Now you, I'm sorry, Monday Morning Church. That was you, yes, you, 2001. Is that was written? 
Yeah, two th- Christmas break of two thousand one. Well, Aaron's Christmas break. I was I was day jobbing at the time. But sure. Yeah, Christmas two thousand one. So that that song actually you know beat me to Nashville because she took it back and I moved a couple months later. And but yeah. you were there for a good three years before. I was happened. there. So th- th- this is what I'm yeah. trying to get at. Like, like you, you wrote the song, but and I don't want to like. I, I want you to give the big reveal on what happened and everything, yeah. right? But so, like, <laughs> like get us to what happened with that song, and 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 but how it got from the initial point of writing to the point where where mm-hmm. you know it got the cut and whatnot. Like, I'm really kind of curious about that because that seems like an awfully long time. But what do I know? I don't do this. Really. Yeah, it was. It was funny because this song was kind of doing its own thing, almost unrelated to the rest of my life. So I'm moving to Nashville and I'm writing with whoever I can, not writing with pros yet or anything, but just writing with whoever I can get other people trying to get in the business and nobody's interested in our songs. But meanwhile, Aaron's over at MTSU and uh, during one of the classes or whatever, they bring in a guest speaker guy named Jeff Carlton, who's a veteran music publisher. And she connected with him. He let her send him some songs he liked what he heard, started kind of grooming her, you know, working with her and stuff. And then she ended up having her first demo session sometime in 2002. And it was like her first, like, wow, real demo session. And I guess he fronted the money for that or something. I'm not sure exactly how it worked. But Monday Morning Church was on that demo session. Like, that was one of the songs he loved. So that was on that first demo session, and he started pitching it around. Of course, he knows everybody. And... So I moved there in March 2002, and by that summer, probably, um, we got our first hold on it. And it was on hold for Leanne Womack, and I was thrilled. So here I am going to the row every day, working, you know, day job, doing data entry and licensing and stuff, but can't get arrested. But then this song pops up, and Aaron's like, hey, we, we got a hold on Leanne Womack. I'm like, that's amazing, because it was demoed female, because Aaron's a great singer, great singer-songwriter herself. And... I was, you know, I was stoked by that. And that was on hold for a while. It didn't happen. And then I guess that might have been 2003 because it was 2004. It was like the month of my two-year anniversary moving to Nashville. And it was it was my two-year anniversary. And the song at this point was on hold with uh, Terry Clark, country artist. And, you know, she's going into cut soon. So, we're you know, got her fingers crossed. But still, I got nothing else going on. I'm writing songs, but nothing's getting traction. And I go out to celebrate with my buddy Tim, who lives there now, and, and some other friends. But, you know, I've been in town two years. Let's celebrate. And I come back, and it's, I don't know, like one in the morning or whatever. And I didn't have a cell phone. There's a voice on my answer machine from Aaron. Hey, it's Aaron. Got some news. Call me back when you can. And I knew that Terry Clark was going to be going in the studio like that week. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I think we got a Terry Clark cut. You know, so I'm like up all night just waiting till like eight o'clock so I can call Aaron. You know, I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm thinking I got my first cut. It's my two year anniversary. This is amazing. So I call her first thing in the morning and she's like, Well, Terry didn't cut the song. I'm like, Oh, she's like, But Alan Jackson put it on hold. I'm like, ah! Wait, what? I don't know what to feel right now because Alan, you know, he's, he's a legend and Terry's great and I would have been. I mean, I couldn't sleep all night thinking maybe I got a Terry Clark cut. I was so excited. But then to go, oh, it could be an Alan Jackson thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure, okay. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Okay. And later that month, uh, Jeff Carl- Carlton called me and let me know that Alan had cut it. And so it was the month of my two-year anniversary when it happened, which is, in natural terms, lightning fast. Uh, you know, That's they call it a 10-year you. town. Yeah. So in a way, it happened really, really fast. 
As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties they were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. So, so you knew, so like these, these, these holds and the holds would, would, um, slip, I guess. And then someone else would hold like th- mm-hmm. that process. You, you were in a certain extent, uh, ex- ready for that. It wasn't like, Oh, I got this, this song someone's got a hold on it. And, and now it's going to be done soon. Like you, you kind of knew this was going to take some time to kind of work its way through the process before it got cut. Yeah. And, and I'd been around enough to know at that point that it's really hard to get a cut. And okay. that stuff takes a while. So, yeah, it had been because it had been on hold, we knew it was a possibility and you're kind of getting ready for that. And so knowing it had been on hold for that month and it was a couple of weeks later when we found out that, you know, he got the cut that he made, you know, he cut the record. But then you're keeping your fingers crossed that it makes the record. Yeah. Because okay. yeah, I'd seen enough of that to it's know, too, that, wow. well, he cut it. That's great. Well, and one thing is funny because Jeff's like, hey, they want to present it to the label first. So don't don't go telling everybody that he cut it yet. I'm like, you just told me I got an Alan Jackson cut. My first cut. And don't go like telling everybody. Don't say anything. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I was in my office at Blue Water, you know, putting in other people's royalty money when I got that call. (laughs) And I just popped my head into Pete's office. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to just go take a, take a walk real quick. I'll be, I'll be back. You know, and then I just kind of, you know, fist pumping, like walking around music row, looking like an idiot. I'm sure just going, <laughs> wow. You know, I call my mama, you know, he said, I call my sure. folks. Cause who are they going to tell? Right. Um, and so, but I had to sit on that for like a couple weeks till wow. it was like official that it got cut. And then we still had to wait to see if, and that was like late March, the record didn't come out to like October. So there's this, it's funny. There's not this like big moment of it's on the record. It's more like, we think it's on the record. We think it's on the record. And finally you get, okay, I think I'm believing this. Yeah. It's more of like almost a dawning or a release of tension of, uh, okay, yeah, I think we got it. I think it's on there. You know, it's more like that. I I don't think I have the constitution for that, man. Like I'm more of an immediate, uh, you know, impact kind of guy. Like that would just drive me crazy to have to wait that long. Oh, yeah. Um, And knowing this is a life changer. Like when when do you get to actually celebrate the success? Like just so many of these little mini successes, but not really successes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, there are successes along the way. And, of course, we didn't know it was going to become a single, end up becoming Mm -hmm. a single off that record late 2004. Yeah, it became a big hit. Yeah, it was. It went top five, which as a first cut, you know, Aaron was still in college, and this is I'm I'm a nobody, and I'd been in town two years and didn't know many people, so they just they're like, who are these yahoos? And so it's really unheard of. It's really, I mean, it's it's a God thing, I believe. That uh, it's funny a song that talks about yelling at God and having a crisis of faith. He's like, I only take that one, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. do this for uh-huh. you. Uh, <laughs> he's pretty a- secure in himself, I guess. I guess, yeah. 
Well, so let me ask you about yeah. this a little bit because this this is curious. So, so uh, and I don't I don't mean to jump around too much. So reel me in if I need to if you need to. But um, I mean, so you know, you, you've got you, it's your first cut. You've been around mm-hmm. in town for two two years. Don't you know you're not really a known uh, entity yet. Not you're at all. At, uh, Blue Water, but it becomes a top five hit. So how does that like? How do you leverage that? Like, how does that become? I mean, obviously, you it, it leads to a publishing deal, but like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What 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 steps do you need to take to make sure that that doesn't become just like a fluke story that you tell your kids about when you're back at the telecom company versus <laughs> right. one that you're telling about as a successful songwriter? Right. Boy, that's a good question. I mean, leverage. That's that's a that's a. I mean, that's part of the name of my own podcast. The climb stands for creating leverage in the music business, ah, and so okay. I like that word. Um, so I was working at Blue Water, and you know, I'd done the numbers and talked to Jeff Carlton about the numbers on like what Alan typically sells, and we didn't know it was going to be a single. So like, okay, if he sells and he goes platinum, this is this much money. It was basically like, don't quit your job over one single, because I didn't have a lot or over one album cut. Because I, like I said, I didn't have anything else going on. Like I would meet with some publishers and take meetings, but nobody's doing backflips. And even on Monday Morning Church, everybody was passing on it that I played for it. You know, they're like, hey, it's pretty good. Oh, pretty sad. You know, <laughs> and so everyone's passing on it. But then, like I said, it's disconnected to the rest of my life. But then I get these phone calls. Hey, it's on hold. Okay. You know, she, Aaron found, God bless Jeff Carlton. Rest in peace. He's passed away now. But, you know, thank God for him believing in it. You know, he was a champion. And he wasn't just a champion. He was a champion with a Rolodex. <laughs> he was a champion that could call <laughs> Keith Stagall and play it for him. You know, he was a champion that also had connections, but I couldn't get anybody interested in it. So, yeah, so I'm meeting some publishers and doing that sort of deal. And going, I was, I'm an ASCAP member, so I was going to ASCAP and doing meetings and stuff. But I wasn't going to quit my job. I'd I'd quit um, Cracker Barrel by this point by like a year or so. I, I did that just only for maybe about a year. So I was full time at Blue Water, then back to part time. So just kind of bouncing around there doing stuff. And but I was like, I'm going to keep this gig because. You know, I see what the number is on platinum. I don't need to quit my job right now. You know, let's keep in it. Plus, this is a job in the music business, so it's not like it's torture or anything. You know, it's still helping me meet people and get on the road every day. Uh, But actually, I was let go of Blue Water. (laughs) So, um, okay, well, hey, guys, you want to admin my publishing? And they said, yes. So they work for me now, which is funny. Uh, so now they do that, my admin on Monday Morning Church and other songs that I have the publishing on. Uh, so that's a lesson. Don't burn bridges. You know, I got oh, gosh, I got gosh. canned, but if I'd blown up, I would have lost an opportunity. And and that was a, a blessing of having been there and learning about licensing. I owned my publishing on Monday Morning Church. And, oh, my gosh, I got this Alan Jackson song coming out. And then soon you find out, oh, my gosh, I got a single. What do I do with this? Like, how do I make sure I get paid? Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I'd been around the business enough to go. Okay, I can, I can, I could issue my own license to Sony, you know, just as myself, my personal publishing company. I got my stuff set up at ASCAP, and and I knew enough, and also know Blue Water does a, a great job, so I hired them to admin my stuff. So what they do is they admin for songwriters and publishers, and they just mm-hmm. take a, a percentage of what they collect. But they they're all up on the licensing around the world and collections and all that stuff. And I knew I needed someone to do that. But you eventually did sign a you did get a publishing deal oh, yeah. so, for, for other for other uh songs. Yeah, so leaving Blue Water, that kind of really pushed me to, to like I really need to go get a publishing deal now because well that part-time job I was planning on keeping is gone now. Didn't plan on mm-hmm. keeping me. So uh, how that happened was, you know, I'm trying to get meetings places and I went over to ASCAP and my rep there at the time was a guy named Chad Green. Great guy. 
And he'd been hearing about me, but that was our first meeting. And he'd heard about the song. He'd met with Aaron. So I met and I went and met with him and played him a few things and played him Monday morning church. He knew, you know, it was out now that the song had been cut by Alan. And so, uh, you know, we hit it off and he liked what he heard and, and he picked up the phone for me and he called Major Bob Music, um, which is Bob Doyle is Garth Brooks manager and Sat Publishing Company. And he knew that they were looking for some young writers. And so he called him up and said, hey, Mike, you know, Mike Doyle's Bob's son used to be, he was actually my first ASCAP meeting back in 2000. And he heard a couple songs off that Triple Plywood record and didn't love them. But uh, so here we are years later and Chad calls him. He's like, hey, he just got an Alan Jackson cut. I like what he's doing. I know you're looking, you know, is it cool if he drops some stuff off? And they said, Yes. So I dropped some stuff off and end up getting a meeting. And this this is funny. This is where cold calling versus having somebody pick up the phone for you makes a difference. I had called Major Bob already, asked if I could drop some stuff off. It probably had Monday Morning Church on that comp when I dropped it off and never heard anything back. I don't know if it ever got listened to or what. But it's funny. It's probably some of the same songs that I dropped off after Chad it's, picked it's, up the phone it's a, for me. It's amazing how sometimes the same thing sounds differently in a different context. It sure it? does. I mean, now we got a call from a PRO and we know he has an Alan Jackson cut. Yeah, this sounds different now. <laughs> or, suddenly, suddenly the notes are a little clearer. I don't exactly. Know. Or na- maybe now we'll listen to it. I mean, I, like I said, I don't right. know if it ever got listened to and I wasn't sure. going to bring it up. So I got a meeting and, and I was taking meetings other places and, um, you know, they offered to take the publishing for Monday morning church off of my hands, you know, uh, I declined because one thing that was scary for me is, I mean, good problem is still scary going, okay, if I bring this publishing into a deal, they get paid on that. And so basically it's a very safe bet for them. We got, he's got this cut. It's going to pay for at least his first year, you know, from that. So there's no risk. And then what if they just drop me after a year and they keep my song? You know, I was okay, worried that, about stuff like that. Point. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because this is the second time I've had a conversation with a songwriter where, where something just happened. Where yeah, Ben Stanton kept the yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I listened to that episode. Week. Yeah, good oh, episode. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So like, it, it was really interesting. So so this is a this is a smart play here. This is like, okay, I've got something now that's already been proven. I can hang on to that. You want to sign me? You've got some skin in the game now for my next stuff to be successful, mm-hmm. as opposed to taking the thing that's already successful and then forgetting about it. Yeah, exactly. That's like a strategy. It's, yeah, because I. You know, I was like, well, I don't want to be worried and have that in the back of my head that they can drop me after a year and I've paid them to write for them. And what happened now? I just lost this big blue chip I got. And so, yeah, I listened to your episode with Ben. I've met him. I met him over at Bug one time um, when he was writing there. But I was thinking the same thing that apparently he was thinking when he got his first, uh, I guess, Jason Aldean thing was like, I, yep. want, I need to know you're in it for my future, yeah. not for what I've already done. I need to know not you believe in me. Not just the fact that I got an Alan Jackson cut and Major Bob, they, they believed in me and my future. And so I'm like, yeah, all right, this is home. And so I wrote there for the next three years. So that helped me get the my first publishing deal. So it's funny when, you know, I have coaching clients and and people that, you know, ask me like, okay, how do you, how'd you get a publishing deal? I'm like, well, I got an Alan Jackson cut. They're like, oh, <laughs> like that. I don't know how easily repeatable that is, you know, how sure. handy that is for other people trying to, uh, you know, get a publishing deal and stuff. But the lesson is leverage. Yeah. Leverage. You know, proving, proving the concept, proving that you can hang. (laughs) For sure. And I want to use this as an opportunity to maybe just quickly pivot uh, as we, as we, um, 
wind up here to what you're doing now as well, not mm-hmm. just songwriting, but you, you mentioned the coaching clients. You mentioned earlier the, the podcast, the climb and the um, songwriting pro dot com and whatnot. So can you talk a little bit about when you started incorporating this uh, and I'm going to call it songwriter education mm-hmm. component to what, to what you do? When did that, when did that, when did you decide that you were going to do that? Why? And, um, and just tell us a little bit about that, I guess. Sure. Like, not it, everyone my- does that. Yeah, my family is a family of teachers. My mom and dad are retired school teachers. Um, I, I thought about doing a little bit of teaching after college, you know, just at, until I got to Nashville or whatever. I'd entertain that thought a little bit. And so it just kind of happened after the success of Monday Morning Church and having publishing deals and some other cuts and stuff. I got invited to do some stuff for NSAI to do a little workshop teaching. I went back to that NSAI chapter in, in Jonesboro, mm-hmm. Arkansas, and would you know, be the special guest at one of the workshops. And I just enjoyed talking about songwriting and breaking it down and getting into the the craft of it and talking about the business. And I just enjoyed that. And, you know, you know, some people I say they have their, their heads are all full of melodies and lyrics. So I only have lyrics. So the place where melodies would be, I keep like spreadsheets, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, and so that's kind of my other thing. And so I just enjoyed that at NSAI. I, I end up uh, being one of their, song evaluators and one of their one-on-one kind of coaches and, and doing some work with them. And and that was helpful too. Like when I'd be in between publishing deals and they were just, they've been a great home for me. And, and that got me doing a lot more songwriter coaching, one-on-one stuff. And you just kind of start building your catalog of, of analogies and like teaching tools and techniques. And, and I enjoy it. And so just over time it became, and as either being between publishing deals or, you know, because of streaming and that kind of stuff, we've seen the crash in songwriter income. Well, this is a value that I have. It's something in the music business that I love. It's something I geek out on. So I love doing that. And I'm not shy about getting in front of a group of people and talking about the art, the craft, the business of songwriting. And, and so it just started, it just kind of kept growing until eventually it's like, oh, well, this is a big part of what I do. And so I enjoyed it. it. You know, some these days there are a lot of slash songwriters or songwriter slash artists, songwriter slash producers, songwriter slash, you know, uh, sidemen, you know, musicians that go out on the road and they play. And that's kind of how they cobble together a living because it's really hard to make a living as a songwriter um, if you're not doing something else on the side, unless you're just mm-hmm. one of those few folks that are getting most of the cuts. It's really hard to make mm-hmm. a living. And I got a big family. I mentioned earlier the adoption. So, you know, mm-hmm. I got five kids now and my wife cool. stays home with them. Yeah, it's no joke. And so uh, this is this is something I turned to to help kind of keep the the ship afloat. And it's it's really been a blessing. It's a lot of fun. So I, I'm full-time in the music business, either educating or writing myself. And it was also something that, you know, kind of like back in my blue water days, here's the something that's not on the creative side, but man, it gets me around the business, keeps me around the business, helps me meet folks. And and so with a podcast and songwriting pro, we bring in people for workshops and online stuff and uh, coaching, that sort of stuff, which is fun because it, it keeps me sharp. You know, they say, if you want to learn something, teach it. Teach it. Absolutely. And Absolutely. and so I've, I've got that stuff in my face all day long because I'm teaching it. So eventually like I better follow my own instruction, my own advice, you know, so it helps keep me sharp and learning so I can share it with others, helps me, you know, keep contacts with folks in the music business and build new contacts. Cause I can be like, Hey, you want to come on the podcast or Hey, you want to be yeah, my guest sure. for this event? And so I'm trying to build these things in a way that leverages, you know, each other, each side of it leverages the other and, and helps 
the other grows. So, and that's been intentional because these days as a songwriter, so much about relationships and that anything I can do to help build that and kind of come through another door as a writer, you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's some producers I, I wouldn't get a meeting with, but yeah, they'll come on the podcast or, Hey, they'll do this sure. workshop for me. Great. That's just kind of a side door into that. Now we still get to start building a relationship. That's really interesting. I mean, do you, I mean, I, I got a couple of questions here on this one. I'm going to, I'm going to blend them together into one complicated question. Uh, oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Let me but take like, another sip of coffee. So, All right, yeah, exactly. You want to yeah, gear up here. So, um, do you feel like, you know, was that having the admin job and, and, and the work you did uh, uh, kind of at that more, what I would call a foundational layer of the business mm-hmm. at Blue Water, did that help in uh, the process of, of teaching that component of things uh, mm-hmm. through through the webs and the podcast? Or, and, 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 and then I guess separately, is there, before you start to do this kind of education, is there a certain amount of like bona fides you got to sort of uh, compile before you could sort of either yourself personally or, or externally that others feel as if you're able, you, you're the authority on this topic mm-hmm. in the first place. You see what I'm saying? And that's why I'm kind of linking it back to the admin thing at Blue Water because mm-hmm. you've, you've, you've got that foundation. But just in general, what do people look for, uh, I guess, or what do you feel like you need to have um, as a foundation before you kind of make that 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 jump to 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 uh, educating others? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes to both. I think okay. definitely Blue Water and being on the admin side, seeing the inner workings of a publishing company was helpful, uh, especially early on, not only to help do my own music business for my own publishing company, you know, my, mm-hmm. of myself, but mm-hmm. then also talking about it. Now, I don't go deep in the weeds on that stuff because it's been how many years since I worked at Blue Water and now they're doing my admin. So I'll bring in an expert that's more like, what's going on right now, usually for that type of stuff, but I have a working mm-hmm. knowledge of it. Maybe okay. more so than, you know, you know, the average songwriter, definitely more so than most aspiring writers. And then as far as kind of the bona fides, yes, I mean I'm yeah, I think it's important to you know, I'm a working active songwriter. I've been blessed. I just had a a number one in Southern Gospel um you know, this this year. And so I'm breaking into new genres as well, but it's like, I'm a working songwriter. I'm, I'm out there, I'm pitching songs, I'm getting cuts. And so the information I have, one thing is current because I'm actively writing, actively pitching, you know, writing with artists and, and doing that whole deal. So it's, you, the music business changes so much. For one thing, you just want to make sure that the advice you're get, getting isn't from 1985 or 2005 because <laughs> things change. Yes. And if somebody's been out of it, and, and not working it, it, it's harder to keep up. It just is. And I've been blessed to have, you know, several cuts and, and some different genres and and everything. So that it definitely, I think it's important to have that kind of social cred and that street cred of, uh, yeah, I, I worry about that. If, you know, you see a lot of stuff on online, there are a lot of people willing to tell you what you should well, do about yeah, songwriting. There's no shortage of, of people that, Advice. you know, want to take your money and tell you what to do. And first thing I look at is, okay, what have you done? I mean, have you actually accomplished what you're asking, you telling me you, that you can help me do? Like, have you been there? Have you done that? I think that's an important question. Not that maybe somebody, I mean, there's some great coaches, Super Bowl winning co- coaches that never really played and never you know, made it out of high school football. So it doesn't mean that just because you didn't you know, win a Super Bowl ring yourself, you can't take a team to the Super Bowl. But there is something to be said for people that are still in it, doing it actively, and or at least have done it in the past, I think is an important thing to look for. So that's, you know, and so that keeps motivating me to keep to keep chugging to keep 
to keep getting cussed, to keep expanding, to stay current. Because again, they, you know, these things leverage each other. Uh, my songwriting successes open up doors for songwriting pro and the climb to have, you know, other people come in and creates opportunities there. And, and people I'm meeting through there creates opportunities for my songwriting. So on, on a good day, they're working together with this beautiful synergy of, you know, putting food on the table and helping me live a creative life and work with people I really enjoy. And that's hard to beat. Well, and yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a great uh, great setup. Then, so um, I want to close this by asking you, like, mm-hmm. for, for for you know, you, you do a lot of this coaching, you work with a lot of aspiring songwriters, things like that. Is there any? I mean, there's so many things that I'm sure they need to know, and this might be an impossible question, but if yeah. there's if there's if there's one thing we can kind of like rise to the top in terms of the the one point of advice, the one thing to look for, you know, the 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 one mindset to have if they're listening. You know, you're, they'll probably go and check out these other resources here mm-hmm. to get into the details more. But just that that first that first thing, like that someone comes up to you on the street, hey, I'm an aspiring songwriter. What do I need to know? Like, how, what's the what's the easy answer to that? Yeah, if they're aspiring to be like a pro, to like to make money, right? To monetize mm-hmm. this, it's a totally different conversation. If you just want to get great, or it's a hobby, and you're not worried about like making a career in it. If you want to make a career in it, the important thing to remember is your job is not to write songs. Your job is to write songs that get cut and monetized. Right. That's what's going to make a publisher interested in you. You can write great songs, but if there's nothing they can do with them, you're not solving their problems. You know, we're in the service business. And so that's that's been a place where I've come up short before, even after getting some cuts and getting a first publishing deal early on. I was thinking too much. My job is to go in a room and write songs because that's what I moved to Nashville for. That's my favorite part of the gig is going in a room with somebody that I enjoy, that I respect, that inspires me and having a great time and writing the best song we can that day. And then I, I, my default state is let the publishers and other people worry about going and getting a cut. And that'd be great when that happens. But that's not my job. My job doesn't stop in the writer's room. My job is to help push that thing through to completion, which is completion is like it's on a record somewhere. You know, and that's as far as I can take it. And so having that mindset of my job is not just to write songs. My job is to write songs to the ones that are worthy out of that to make sure they get in a good pitchable form, a recording. My job is to access people that can do something with it. Then my job is to pitch that song till it gets cut. Now, there are other people you can partner with that can do that. I mean, some of my co-writers, obviously, like I said, I sing like a horse, so I'm not doing the recording myself. But to keep an eye on those, to move them along, it's like my job isn't done until that song is cut or until I realize, you know, the time has passed for that song. It's time to put it to bed. But one or the other, it's not done then. And having that mindset of like, this is a business my job doesn't stop in the writing room. You know, some people get frustrated because like, I'm working hard, I'm working hard, I'm writing all these songs, but nothing's happening. It's like, well, you know, there are four legs of this stool you want to sit on. It's write, record, access, and pitch. Are you paying enough attention to recording, accessing, and pitching? Or maybe they're writing and recording, but they're not making relationships. Or maybe they're writing, recording, and making relationships, but they don't ever actually like make the pitch. No one's actually hearing their songs going, hey, this is for your artist. Well, then they're not going to get cut either. It takes all four of those if you want to sustain a career. And so I think the earlier you can kind of get that mindset and be working toward all four of those, the better off you're going to be if you want to make it a business. That's fantastic. I think that's great. I mean, you get these, there's so many people that it's, 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 we tend to focus so much on, I mean, the creative part of it obviously is where it starts. A good song is where it starts. Right? Yeah. But it, it's like, that's, that's, there's so many people that only want artists to think about that part and not think mm-hmm. about the other parts, usually to their detriment, it yes. feels like. So I think that's an excellent, excellent um, place to end. How, how do people, uh, how do people find you? They want to learn more about you after this. Sure. I'm easy um, to find. 
Yes, sir. Um, easy to find. I'm at songwritingpro.com. So songwritingpro.com. You, you go there and that links you up to the Climb podcast and my blog and, and all the good stuff we have going on there. So yeah, just keep kicking out content and trying to be helpful. And any, anything next for you that you want to uh, mention, promote? Oh, uh, celebrate, <laughs> celebrate. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed right now. Cause you know, I'm getting to write with some people I enjoy. I have a single out in Southern gospel. So I've in the past year or so I've been writing more of that. So I have a single out called hallelujah homecoming, uh, by an artist named Wilburn and Wilburn that does well in that world. So that's fun and writing for some country projects and, and various and sundries. So just working that stuff. So again, working well, songwriter and then share, hopefully, you know, a few nuggets up bring back from the wilderness <laughs> you know well, listen you know what we could easily do another hour just on some of that stuff but that's what that's what your podcast is about not sure don't want to pull your listeners from that so check out the <laughs> check out his podcast if you want to get more into that stuff brent thank you so much for taking the time today i really appreciate it hey man my pleasure thanks for having me on thanks for tuning in to keep up with brent take a look at his social media profiles and podcast linked in the show notes We'll be back in two weeks with another brand new episode. Until then, stay safe and we'll see you next time.